Tonight, we're in Romans chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 25. And, and so here, here's where Paul is in Romans chapter 7. It's an interesting, it's an interesting chapter altogether, and I, I'm not going to be able to do it justice in one night. But um, what Paul has done over several chapters is told us how big and how good and how true and how life-changing the grace of God that comes to us in Jesus Christ through the gospel really is. And one thing that we saw two weeks ago when we were in Romans 6 is that Paul anticipates a question at the beginning of Romans 6, and it's this. So if grace is so big, and if grace is so good, well, then my sin doesn't matter, right? Like, we can just kind of be who we are and be okay with that and just accept what we are and what we've been and where we're going and accept each other. Like, yeah, we all mess up. It's all good. And if you remember at the beginning of Romans 6, what Paul said was, by no means. By no means. Because of justification, my sin was put on Jesus and his righteousness was put on me, right? And so I know because I'm in union with Christ that I actually can say that I died with him when he died. And I've been raised to do life with him when God raised him from the dead. So Paul asked the question, how could I still live in something, sin, which I've died to, right? We looked at that two weeks ago. And he ended, the key that we ended with in the middle of chapter 6 was uh, chapter 6, verse 14, where Paul says kind of the key marker, the litmus test, is that you are not under law, but under grace, The thing about that is, and with the whole book of Romans, every time Paul says something like this, he just opens up a whole other can of worms. And so now he's got to deal with his subject of law. Okay, wait, we're not under the law. Okay, so you're telling us we're not supposed to sin, but at the same time, we're not under the law. So the law then has no place in my life, right? Or grace and law are totally opposed to each other. What's the deal? Am I supposed to be holy... Am I supposed to live according to the law or not? That's the can of worms that Paul has opened. And a commentator named John Stott was an Anglican bishop, amazing man, uh, passed away just about five years ago. His commentary on Romans, he said, the best way to understand a negative statement is to understand its contrast. And I love his illustration. If I go up to, let's, let's just pick out Gray Lindley back here because I love him. Um, if I go up to Gray and say, Gray, you are not a man. Now, you take that by itself, right? And you don't know which way to go with it. Like, okay, wait, what's he about to say? Now, if I go to Gray and I say, you're not a man, you're a child, right? That's an insult, right? That's not a good thing that I've said. But if I say Gray, and this is actually what I believe and feel, Gray, you're not a man, you're a Greek god, you know, (laughs) something like that, right? Then it's a compliment, right? So you understand the negative statement better by what it's contrasted with. Another example that he uses, I think it's great. If I get back, let's say spring break, I got back from seven days with 21 other people, students, RUF students, from Mexico a couple of weeks ago after spring break. If at the first RUF, I told you after spring break, man, I haven't taken a bath in a week. Everybody would be like, gross. Then I would say, but, but I took a shower every day, right? So understanding the negative statement in light of contrast, Okay. 
In the same way, what Paul is going to kind of do, there's a lot of words and a lot of back and forth as Paul is wanting to do in this letter here. But in the same way, what Paul is going to do here in Romans 7 is draw out for us and answer for us the question, then what good is the law? If we're not under law, what good is it? Let's follow Paul's, I wouldn't say argument, but his letter here as it goes. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7. What then shall we say? Is the law sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be the death of me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Jesus Christ, our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. May he add his blessing to the reading and preaching of it. Let's pray before we look into this. Father, this is your word. That doesn't mean it's completely clear. It doesn't mean that it should be just abundantly clear and understandable to us, but it is your word, meaning we know that they are true and that these words are filled with grace and life. That's what we need. Give it to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. What good is the law in our lives? What good is it? Three contrasts I think we can kind of see um, here in Paul's 
uh, dialogue here in Romans chapter 7. The first one is law and sin. And see, this one's kind of the obvious one because we've seen it over and over again. It seems to kind of come up every week, right? And if you've been paying attention in Romans, all the mentions of the law have been overwhelmingly negative. There have been negative statement after negative statement about the law, okay? In uh, just some examples, 319, we're told the law condemns sin. 320, we're told that the law reveals sin. In 415, we're told that sin, because of the law, is defined as transgression, and it brings wrath. The good stuff that we've read about, the revealed righteousness of justification through faith in Jesus Christ, right? It is so good precisely because it's apart from the law, right? The first six verses of chapter 7 that we didn't read, Paul says that we've died to the law, that our sinful passions are aroused by the law, and now we are released from the law. And so naturally, Paul has got to answer the question, so what good is the law? What good is it? Why should we pay attention? Is it sin? So if, if, if sin keeps coming up when we talk about the law, is the law sin? Or is the law the origin of sin? Or does the law create sin in me? And once again, just as emphatically at the beginning of chapter 6, in verse 7 of chapter 7, Paul says, By no means. By no means is the law sin or is the law bad. But he also says in verse 7, look at what he says there. Yet... <laughs> Yet, if not for the law, I would not have known sin. So Paul's saying, if not for the law, if he did not have the law and know the law the way that he knows it, he would not have known sin. He goes so far to say that apart from the law, he was alive. And because of law, sin came alive and he died. What in the world does he mean? We could spend nights on that alone. What does the law do? What is Paul saying here at the outset that the law does? Two things. First is this. First, and we've seen this before, but let's just think about it for a second. The law reveals sin as sin. That's what Paul is saying in these first couple of verses that we read. Law reveals sin as sin. Meaning sin is never, sin is always there, but when the law comes, we actually then begin to see if we let the law have its way with us or if we try to uphold it, what ends up happening regardless is you end up seeing sin for what it is. Transgression of the law of God. Transgression of the holy, good, and righteous law of God. Okay? He's not saying, uh, side note, he's not saying that without the Ten Commandments, no one in the world would know what is right and wrong, right? There's elsewhere in the Bible, right? The law is actually, the moral law is written on our hearts. It's not saying that if you've never heard of the Ten Commandments, you don't know murder is bad. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is this. He's saying that because of the law, or before the law, before I properly understood the law or had been measured by the law, sin had never fully hit home. Meaning... I thought I was doing pretty okay. But then the law came and it had its way with me and sin came alive and I died. I died. He used very emphatic language here, right? And and think about the commandment that he chooses. He chooses the 10th commandment as an example. Why would he choose the 10th commandment as an example? Thou shalt not covet. Well, think about it. Every single one of the commandments before the 10th, you can look at them and you could probably feel pretty good about yourself. Well, I haven't made any graven images. I, you know, um, God's name in vain, I, I have a problem with that, but I can get that one under control. 
Sundays, okay, I know I, I need to treat Sundays special. I need to honor my parents. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't slept with anybody's wife. Um, I'm doing pretty good. But what about the Tenth Commandment? There's no way to measure for yourself on the outside whether you are keeping the Tenth Commandment. Why? Because it's about the heart. Thou shalt not covet. The Tenth Commandment, some have called it the coup de grace of the Ten Commandments because it goes straight to your heart, right? And that's the one he uses as an example. He says coveting is something different. It takes place on the inside. It gets to my motives. It goes straight to my heart. And he says in verse 11, it killed me. Because my sin deceived me. I thought that I was okay. I thought that I could manage the rules. But when I really stopped and thought about where my heart was when it came to to being content, it sparked all kinds of covetousness. Sin came alive and I died. The law reveals sin to be sin. The second thing it does is it actually provokes sin. So if it provokes sin, how is the law good? Follow me here. It provokes sin. Verse 8. Look at verse 8. It says it produced all kinds of covetousness in me. The more that he tried to not covet, the more he found covetousness in his heart, he's saying. Verse 13, he says, through the commandment... the sin became sinful beyond all measure. Meaning, it, like, I finally saw sin fully for what it was, and it came alive in me. He's saying, the more I tried, the more I found myself failing. The more I tried to think I had it under control, the more I saw that I had nothing under control. It provoked sin. This isn't hard for us to get. Think about this. If you're walking... Uh, I don't know what a good example, but if you're walking through a room that has a bunch of displays, right? And they're all kind of, maybe they're all interactive displays, but you walk past one and in very big neon letters, it says, please do not touch this. 99.99999% of us, we may not touch it, but we all in our heads think, I want to touch it, right? I want to touch it. Uh, I think about Nemo. I don't remember finding Nemo. Um, when he swims, don't go to the boat. He goes to the boat. Don't you touch that boat. Right? And then his friends go, he touched the butt. And it's my favorite part. Um, I meant my kid's favorite part. Uh, no. St. Augustine had a great illustration of this in his confessions. He talks about when he was a young teen, um, that him and his friends, one night, They looked over the wall in the neighboring yard or orchard of where they were, and there were pear trees. And they wanted to get pear trees. But the funny they wanted to get pears. But the funny thing about it was they had pear trees in their own yards. But they broke into this orchard and stole pears from these pear trees. And listen how he says it. There were pear trees loaded with fruit, but it was not desirable in appearance nor in taste. We took great loads of fruit from it, but not for our own eatings, but rather our own eatings, but rather we threw it to the pigs. Why did we do this? We did this to do what pleased us, for the reason that it was forbidden. Could a thing give pleasure which was done for no other reason but because it was unlawful? The law provokes sin. And what this means, this is this is one thing I, I don't know how you've heard about disobedience and breaking God's law and whatnot and sin in your life. But here's, here's a lie, a church lie that we've got to correct. 
Some of y'all have grown up hearing, for one reason or another, that if you sin, you'll be miserable. So if you're not miserable, you know you must not be sinning. The thing about what Paul is saying about the law-provoking sin and what Augustine was getting at with his pear-stealing, sin is actually rather enjoyable. Because it is doing, it is seeking pleasure for the mere fact that is forbidden. Right? Why is it that the married couple, a month after they get home, their physical relationship is nothing like it was when they were dating for five years? Because it's not wrong anymore. And they'll spend years trying to find that spark, right? And they'll miss exactly why the spark was there in the first place. The law provokes sin. But, verse 12, he says, The law is holy and righteous and good. But is the law to blame for my sin? No, see what Paul is saying. No. It was me. I was to blame for my sin. Sin was there all along. And the more I tried to manage it, the more it roared and tried to take me over. And it did. It killed me. It's not something outside of me. It's not something that I can just get fixed. And if I just get that right, everything will be okay. No, the law brings home to me that I do not measure up because there is something inside of me that is wrong. Why is this good? Why is this good? Because it drives home once again what has been Paul's point the whole time. The law can show me my sin, but it cannot save me from it. That is the step. That is the misstep that we make. The law can show me my sin, but it cannot save me from it. My effort, my knowledge, my intentions cannot save me. I cannot make myself fit for God. I cannot climb the ladder because there is no ladder chasm is too great. The law cannot save us. And this is actually what makes the gospel all the more sweeter because we actually need the law to convict us and to show us our sin. Why? To drive us to the only one that can do something about it. And we Christians need it too because we need the law daily to show us our need and then to drive us to the only one that can do something about it. That brings us The second one here, law and holiness, law and holiness. Okay, the law is good because it shows me my sin. I need to know what my sin is. I need to know sin as sin so that I can realize I can't do anything about it. And so that I can get Jesus, the Savior, the, the one who came for sinners, not the righteous, to do something about it. And this is what most Christians do. Those of us who think we're Christians, we think, okay, I got that. I understand everything I've done before now is not good. Okay, I understand Jesus welcomes me in and says he loves me and he forgets all of that. But what am I supposed to do now? You see, that's exactly where Paul turns in verse 13 and 14 and beyond. What am I supposed to do now? And this is the weird thing with what Paul says about the law in his life at this point. There's a, there's a, in verse 13, or verse, uh, yeah, verse 14, there's a verb tense change. Everything before this was in the past tense. Now Paul switches to the present tense. He's talking about his life now. And so what is the role of, what, what, how is he relating to the law now in his life? And what's weird to us is as we read through this, it's like the law kind of seems to be doing the exact same things to him as it was before. 
What's the deal? It's revealing his sin. He says, I don't know what to do. I I don't do what I want to do. And I do what I hate. So the law is revealing his sin again. It's revealing his powerlessness. I know the law is spiritual, but I'm under the flesh. I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. It reveals his sin. Again, it is sin dwelling in me. And then in verse 22, I delight in the law. But I see in my members another law waging war with that desire. And here it is. Here again. Why? Even as Christians, we get so confused with the law. We understand like there's this like law gospel distinction or law grace distinction. But we read the Old Testament. It's like the law was kind of like a pretty big deal back then. And it seems like we're still supposed to do it because Jesus says things like, I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And if you want to enter my kingdom, you have to be perfect as I am perfect. And we're like, what in the world does that mean? What good is the law, especially if I'm a Christian? Because look, we know, we know, we agree with Paul in verse 12. We know that the law is holy and good and righteous because we know that God is good and holy and righteous. And we know that we are not. And we know that the gospel tells us that we are affirmed. We are loved to the skies because it says that in Jesus, in Jesus, God sees us as holy and good and righteous, even when we are not. And we know that that love and acceptance only magnifies again his holiness and his goodness and his righteousness towards us. But at some point there comes a problem, and here it is. As I affirm God's holiness, goodness, and righteousness, as I affirm his word and his law's goodness and holiness and righteousness, and I see the great love with which he's loved me, that he sees me as good and holy and righteousness, righteous, there comes a point where as I meditate on that, something gets magnified. Wait, I am not holy and good and righteous. The more I see God's holiness, goodness, and righteousness, it's inevitable that I'm going to see how much I am not. Doesn't matter how long I've been a Christian. I'm going to see it. And then the question is, what do I do with it? What do I do with it? This is precisely the back and forth that Paul is having. And I think for most of us, we so relate to what Paul is saying. I I know what I want to do, but I can't do it. I know what I don't need to do, but I keep freaking doing it. What am I going to do? Great illustration I came across. Not many, if any of y'all are here yet, but there is something great. I promise. (laughs) um, About getting engaged, about planning your wedding, uh, and about having your wedding day. It's a a great thing. Not just for the bride, for the groom as well. Um, um, It's a wonderful time in a lot of ways, but... There's a mistake that you can make, and I I made it uh, the moment we got in the limo to leave the reception. Um, Our our wedding was great. Our reception was great. We got in the limo. We're pulling away. We're going uh, to the hotel we're going to stay at before we fly out the next morning to our exotic location. Um, (laughs) That's not true. Anyway, um, and the first words out of my mouth were, Man, I'm glad that's over with. I can't even say it with a straight face. My wife still holds that against me. I said, man, I'm glad that's over with. And I meant, I did not mean, like, okay, guys, do not say that to your bride. She has spent months, she spent her whole life thinking about that day. And it's just happened. And so that's not what you should say. Um, 
I meant, I meant good things. But here's the thing. Any of us can fall into this trap where the wedding is so special and the engagement time is so special and frustrating. Um, another sermon. Uh, planning the wedding, getting ready, all the joy of like all your friends and everything being there. There's a, there's a mistake that you can make where you see that at the end of that ceremony and wedding and reception and everything, it's kind of an end. And all of a sudden you think, okay, now we've arrived. Like 30 seconds after it's over, right? We're in couple nirvana, right? We're going to spend the rest of our lives having shame-free sex, and it's going to be great. That was a joke. You can laugh. Come on. Um, That's the only reason you want to get married. Anyway. But I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. There's a reason why we have this thing. Uh, this term called the honeymoon phase, right? And there's a reason why there always comes a moment where somebody goes, honeymoon phase must be over, right? Why is that? This is it. Because there comes a moment, maybe it's a week, maybe it's months, maybe it's a year, where one of you realizes, as great as the cake and the dress and the flowers and the gifts and the party and the friends were, you realize I've got to live with this person until one of us dies, (laughs) right? And so what you realize, what finally comes home to you is, this is just the beginning. The wedding wasn't the end. Just because we got married doesn't mean that we've arrived to some blissful existence together. No, actually, now I'm going to start learning a lot of things about this person that I'm going to go, what did I do, right? Right? It's more like her to me, but still. Um, When we believe the gospel, we can do the same thing. We love grace, right? We love it. We love to talk about it. We love to hear it preached about. God loves me. God covers me. No matter where I've been, no matter what I've done, no matter what I struggle with, God loves me. God accepts me and God saves me of nothing of my own doing. And so that entrance, that moment, I believe, it feels like this happy ending. I've arrived. But there comes a moment, right? Whether it's the Monday you go back to school after that great conference, or it's the August or September or October after you had that great summer at camp, right? Where something happens, or you you just all of a sudden one day have the self-realization moment. I'm still the same person that I was. And here it is. The crisis comes because you say, what in the world am I supposed to do with that? I'm right back where I was. This is what Paul is getting at in Romans 7. And what Paul is getting at in Romans 7 is the heart of the struggle of the Christian life. And by the way, we'll get into this a little bit next week. Jesus promised it would be a struggle. He wasn't just talking about persecution. He was talking about your life, following him, loving him, being faithful to him, being obedient to him. And so we think to ourselves, if I am saved from my sin, okay, Paul, this is great. I've died to my sin. I'm saved from my sin. Jesus did all this thing, these great things for me. But Paul, why do I still struggle with it? Why? Why, no matter how much I hate this thing that is true in my life, I cannot stop going back to it. Why, Paul? You know, you say I'm a new creation in Christ. Why do I see a lot, a lot of the exact old me? Not only do I see a lot of the exact old me, the old me seems to be running the place. 
This is exactly what Paul is dealing with here. Even He says, even though I love the law now, it is showing some of the same things about me. I am sinful, I am weak, and I am evil. And Paul is saying, to paraphrase, sometimes when I try harder, I feel worse. The more he describes it, it kind of crescendos and builds and it builds and it builds. And finally, in verse 24, you just imagine him in exasperation, throwing down the pen and going, wretched man that I am. What am I? See, when we become a Christ, when we become Christians, when we hear the gospel and we understand, okay, there's something good there that I want, right? We have this expectation of our lives. Okay, wait, I got this gospel thing. Things are supposed to be different now. And so whenever we see things that are the same, we freak out because we're like, wait, I thought it was supposed to be different now. What do I do with this? And so we see struggle or we feel weakness or we have doubts. Doubts, right? Those kill us. Wait, I'm a Christian. I'm not supposed to doubt. Where in the Bible does it say that? That's another sermon. We even feel Wretched at times. And what do we automatically assume? We automatically assume, well, I must not have really gotten it. Well, I must not have been sincere enough. Well, I must not have really believed. I must not have heard the real gospel. Something is messed up. I need to get baptized again. I got to walk the aisle again. I got to pray some prayer again. I need somebody to tell me what's going on. Right? Any sign or feeling of frustration or consternation or backsliding, right? We assume that we must have entered with some kind of substandard faith and we're not measuring up. You have to see what Paul is saying, though, through all of this. What he is saying here in Romans 7 is, it is different. It is different. Verse 17 and verse 20 says the same thing. It's no, well, yeah, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And we say, okay, well, that's great. We just blame it on something dwelling in me. And that's how I'm supposed to get past it. That makes me feel better. Kind of seems like a great, uh, a little excuse that Paul has come to, but see what he's saying. He's saying the most fundamental way to understand a Christian is one who has had an identity transformation. God does not swoop in and take everything you've ever struggled with out of your life in an instant. And he never said he would. But he has said that you are new. And that you are his. And that his spirit dwells in you. And no one can do anything about it. You have been changed. And you are being changed. And you will be changed. Romans 8. Come back next three weeks. If I'm a Christian, then the I, like Paul, my truest self, really does love God, really does want God, really does seek God, really does love His law, even though it kills me. And though sin remains, it does not control me, and it does not get to call me by its own name. Because I am new. And so you see the struggle that Paul talks about here is a struggle only a Christian can have. Only a Christian can see his sin for what it really is. Transgression of of the most unimaginable good and holy God that there is. And so when the law comes and measures me and finds me not measuring up to that good and loving God, of course it hurts me. 
Because I realize I'm not just breaking a rule. I'm breaking a heart. And at the same time, says the reason you feel that is because you love. And the reason you love is because you were loved first. The struggle is real. But the struggle's there for a reason. The point is not that we don't need the law. It's that the law cannot produce anything in us. Not even holiness. The law cannot save me. And the law cannot make me more holy. It cannot. But that does not mean I do not do anything with it. So what do I do? The grand paradox, right? The final thing. Law and grace. Law and grace, verse 25. If you got depressed reading Romans 7, finally Paul says in verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law helps us see our need of the gospel for salvation. The law also helps us see our need of the gospel for transformation, living the Christian life. So the grand paradox that Paul is building to for that for the believer, for those in Christ, law and grace go hand in hand. That doesn't sound right, does it? Law and grace go hand in hand. I am not free to disregard the law. I am free fulfill it because of grace. The gospel way forward is that we're led even more to see our need, even more to feel our need at times, even as we try to live the law. And yet somehow, by grace, we are led again and again And again, to see how greatly the need has already been met. Law and grace go hand in hand. We we sang of it at the beginning. Let us wonder grace and justice. Join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. How in the world can that be? Because he who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. That's it. How can it be? How can law and grace go together? Because he has washed us with his blood. Meaning he died. Meaning, if you want law and grace to come together in your life, don't be surprised. Don't be discouraged. Don't be hopeless when it feels like death. Because it is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we resonate a lot with what Paul is saying here. Because even in our best days, we feel broken, we feel weak, we feel wounded, but we're trying. 
Father, we don't know what else to do. Would you help us? Would you help us see our sin for sin, but in that same moment, would you lead us to the cross? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.